Marginalized groups exist in every community. Their stories often get swept under the rug, forgotten, or minimalized. By sharing these stories, we hope to cultivate compassion and equip the local church to better care for all people. This is Life Stories. On this episode of Life Stories, we are going to chat with Heather Enright and Amy Brooks. They are the founders of our Foster and Adoption Advocates, another arm of the Life Task Force here at Church at the Cross. I'm excited for you to hear from them. They both have very unique journeys into the adoption and foster care world. So Heather, if you would start and just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in the world of adoption. I'm Heather Enright, and my husband Chris and I have been members at Church of the Cross for 18 years. We have three kids. We have an emptying nest right now. And I first stepped into the adoption world when I was a senior at Baylor University and did a field placement at an adoption agency. And initially it just looked interesting and I felt a connection to adoption because my dad um, is adopted. And then once I started in that, I realized that was really what I wanted to do for my career. So um, I have a master's in social work and I've worked in adoption since uh, full-time since 1994. Currently, I am co-founder and executive director of the Adoptee Collective, which is a new nonprofit that I co-founded with Kara Donaldson, who is a covenant member here at Church of the Cross. And our vision is to be a healing adoptee community who revolutionizes systems that impact them. So we are creating trauma-informed and adoptee-centered resources and tools. That's awesome and so important in this field, right? Yes, there's definitely, we're trying to fill gaps where um, research, brain research, and other evidence-based information is really helping us better understand the impact of foster care and adoption on the child and the lifelong impact that it has. So we, Kara and I really want to be an organization that can speak into that and um, let the adoption experts be those with lived experiences. So Amy, if you would just introduce yourself, tell us about your journey into foster care, um, just briefly, and then we'll kind of dive into your story. Sure. So I'm Amy Brooks, and my husband Taylor and I have been at the church for um, 22 years. Our oldest daughter is 23, so we came here when she was six months old. Um, We have four kids, and three in college, one in high school. And um, when our kids were um, in, I guess when our oldest child was about 16, is when we decided to do uh, foster care full-time as a family really as a collective ministry uh, that our children could be involved in. Um, And so that was in 2015 when we started taking classes. And so, yeah, we we are a fully licensed uh, foster and adoption family, although we're not motivated to adopt. And we are focused on bridging that gap for children uh, coming into care and then um, moving them from our home to either back 
to reunification with their biological family or um, to onto an adoptive family. And so we've been doing that since 2016. At this point in our journey, we are a full-time respite family, which means that rather than having a full-time placement in our home, uh, we actually provide respite or babysitting long-term for families who need a break. And you guys have known each other for a long time. Um, how do you know each other? I'll let you start. <laughs> so we went to Baylor University together, all four of us, and our husbands, Chris and Taylor, were in the same fraternity. And I would say my first memory with the, they weren't, of course, we were not married. We were just dating, but we were in a couple's class together. That's my first memory of spending time with Amy and Taylor. And that was 90, 1991. And we did some double dating. And then toward our senior year, we would eat lunch together on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the four of us. That's so fun. Yeah. So do you feel like your passion for adoption and foster care, how does that intertwine with your relationship? I mean, you guys kind of have grown up together mm -hmm. in a sense. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like there's a connection between Heather, you going into adoption work and Amy, you um, and your family doing foster care, or how, have those been kind of just separate journeys that the Lord has taken you on? To me, I feel like it's just that the Lord has orchestrated all of those events to eventually bring them together. Mm -hmm. I think that while we were in college together, I knew she was a social work major, but knowing so little about the department she was in, it wasn't, that was not really ever a topic of our conversation um, as to we didn't spend a great deal of time, the four of us, trying to talk about what we were going to do for a living. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we were more focused on what was right in front of us. So I think that that, but God has just used that and the fact that we work well together and know each other's strengths and what challenges of us. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that has just served us well. That's all the Lord's doing. But it's an intended outcome for us. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the Lord has orchestrated all of that. Yeah, I concur. Amy and I worked together um, with the MOPS, the Moms of Preschool program here at Church at the Cross, back in the day when it was first starting and we were Memorial Baptist. So we've worked in ministry together and we work well together because we are good friends. And I think we're very like-minded and sort of each other's... Like I say, Amy, you say they're half of my brain, mm -hmm. and we've raised our kids together. So um, God used that way back with Mops, and so it's been really interesting seeing his hand to bring us to this place of ministry together for these passions that having margins in motherhood have sort of allowed, I think, both of us to pursue adoption and foster care in new ways. I think it's so interesting that you say that your margins in motherhood are what have allowed you to do more in the foster and adoption care, because I think so many people have the mindset of, I'm going to raise my kids and then kind of move on from that. But it's almost like a, like a starting over in a sense. Do you guys feel that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I would say that um, definitely... As our kids 
hit middle school and high school and our kids ages overlap. So our children, my children and Amy's kids have grown up together and call each other cousins, fake cousins. Um, But I think in that we've seen as they entered those ages, a desire to launch them in a purposeful way and from a place of a family that is purposeful and living out the gospel. And I think all of those seasons combined um, and with the kids having a little more independence and not having to be their taxi everywhere, mm-hmm. it's allowed each of our families to sort of explore, you know, how do we steward the time and resources and just God and his sovereignty allowed the opportunity to work in ministry together. Yeah. Yeah, that is so neat. Okay, so Heather, um, we'll start with you. How how did it go? Because I know for you, you kind of um, you found out that your dad was adopted, and um, that was kind of a pivotal moment for you going into this. Um, can you just kind of unpack that and share that story? Sure. I think initially, so I was thirteen when my parents sat me down. That was the magic age at our house, apparently, that you sat me or my older sister down to say, oh, by the way, uh, your grandmother is your biological great aunt. Mm -hmm. So when my parents told me, it didn't change how I felt about my grandmother, but I did feel this sense, I can recall feeling this sense of being left out because my older sister is three years older. Oh, so everybody else has known for three years but I'm just now being told, and it's not a big deal, but then why didn't I always know this? And and then at 13, and what am I wearing to school tomorrow? You know, moving on. But over the years, um, and when I first started considering adoption for a career, I began to realize that I had a lot of feelings and thoughts about my dad being adopted. And I think a really uh, crucial experience was when my grandmother one night and I had the boys, I didn't have our daughter yet, but we had the two boys and they were two and four, I think at the time. And all of a sudden one night at my grandmother's, she just starts telling this story. And I realize my dad never knew his actual birth story. Mm-hmm. He was gone by then. And she, I am trying to you know, hold a straight poker face. And she is just, because I don't want to interrupt the flow of the story. And grandmother is telling me, and I realize it's nothing that my dad knew. And at that point, however old I was in my 30s, thinking, I'm part Italian. I never knew that. Oh, that makes sense. My dad looked Italian in some ways. So I think that epiphany really deepened my tug to adoption and foster care need to be done in a better way. Yeah, I can see that. And and part of what you do right now with the Adoptee Collective is help adoptees to kind of learn and write their stories, right? Yes, exactly. And that's actually how it started is that Kara in her work in Kenya realized there is a gap in resources. There was really nothing out there to help the kids she works with to capture their own story and and put it down. And the caregivers at the care centers, and this is true globally, are often paraprofessionals who are loving and caring, but don't have an education background. 
in social work or any of those disciplines. So we started collaborating on um, the My Storybook and developing that resource. And that led during COVID and that led to a website. And then the nonprofit um, came in April when we signed our paperwork, April of this year. Amy, I wonder um, in working with foster children and and seeing them come into your home, you've primarily had younger kids, Mm -hmm. right? So how do you feel like even with younger kids that their story comes into play I would say that that is true without fail, no matter the age of the child. It just manifests itself differently as they age. So a newborn who is recovering from having been exposed in utero to meth or to cocaine, um, that man- those two drugs actually manifest themselves completely differently than um, a child exposed to marijuana. And so right out of the gate... Even if you get a newborn, you are dealing with withdrawal of some sort, and they all three that I just mentioned look completely different, Mm -hmm. and then they manifest themselves differently developmentally. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about how your family chose to go into foster care? Your kids were much older Mm -hmm. when you started. Yeah. Our oldest, um, we have four children, and at the time... um, that we became a licensed family. Our oldest daughter was 16. And we specifically chose the agency that we went with because uh, it allows for 16-year-olds to be babysitters. Um, And one of the precursors to us getting licensed was the fact that our older daughters um, had been babysitting for foster families in the community, some of which were in our church, And they were able basically to have a ministry of their own doing that. But when we realized that some agencies don't allow children uh, to to babysit, like some agencies require them to be 18 or even 21, we realized that there was a gap of who could minister to whom within the church. And so in my ignorance, I didn't realize that we even had people in our own congregation who weren't able to receive just really basic help in a very high stress situation because no one was prepared to do so. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that it took uh, taking some classes. I didn't know that um, I could easily uh, be a participant in that. So my husband and I really went to the initial class to become babysitters. Uh, for good friends of ours um, at Church of the Cross that our daughters had been babysitting for. We just wanted to join our daughters in doing that. And after one class, we looked at each other and we said two things. First, I realized at that moment, I probably should have been taken out of my home of origin based on what I was hearing was, were, uh, I guess, valid reasons for removal. I realized that could have been me. Mm. And um, we had so, I had so many extended family members that filled in that gap. But what about women and men in our community that have no one to fill in that gap? They have no church body, no grandmothers, no aunts, no one. And I realized this is a really huge issue in our community. Yes, that could have been me. And then Taylor and I just said, our family needs to do this. Our children need to see that um, 
we, all six of us, we all have a part to play in this. Uh, that will be varied, but we can all participate in this um, as a family. So we just continue taking classes to be licensed. Mm-hmm. It sounds like for both of you, your your personal stories just of your family life and growing up really informed kind of the area of ministry that you chose. Mm-hmm. And so what are some ways or have you seen ways that you that you see yourself or your family in the children and even adult adoptees that you help? Are there ways that you see yourselves or that you have more empathy maybe for the kids in your care? Uh, because of our original story? Yeah. Oh, absolutely for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I realized, not that I would have wished that I myself had been a participant of the foster care system. That's not what I mean. But I do really understand the plight of people who are in a in a relationship that is abusive in some way, which would have been my mother, um, and did not really see a way, to, for whatever reason, just did not see a way to get out of that wheel. And that became her norm. And it became a way of living and a way of coping that seemed normal to her. And in turn, as a child, that seemed very normal to me. But looking at it from this side, I realize how many people cannot mask that kind of abuse because of where you live or what you have. Some people even socially outside of their home can compensate and make it look like everything is fine, but you can only hide crazy for so long. And so I just really, I realize in every CPS meeting that I've been in, no matter the biological mother, no matter what she has done, no matter what the biological father has done, there is always a side to them that is regretful and Uh, wants things to be different, but because of how they have been raised, uh, because of what they have been exposed to or the lack of support system that they have had, that seemed normal to them. They did not realize the danger they were putting their children in in many cases. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it grows my empathy for people. I, I read Um, a study, a brain study recently that just explained that asking someone who was probably raised in foster care themselves, who had no support of their own as a child, to now take their child and provide what they have never seen to that child to model that for them is like putting us in ice skates, Mm -hmm. setting us on the ice as a beginner and told, now do a triple axle. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we can't, we know we can't do that, but that I feel like is often what the system is asking of these people. Mm-hmm. They are asking them to produce at an expert level parenting that they have literally never been exposed to. And it shows, obviously, the system is broken. People are fallen and make poor choices. I'm thankful we have a system that catches these so that, um, you know, I, I believe that that church Um, that churches and that Christ followers should be the ones to catch those situations and breathe life into it while there is restoration with hope. 
So yes, it very much fuels my empathy. And I tend to be have a personality that is very outspoken for the underdog anyway. And I've I love that the Lord has put me in many situations where I've been able to see the good in someone that no one else can acknowledge and have been able to fight for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How have you seen the Lord and maybe even the church come alongside you in coming from a family that was abusive and being able to be a cycle breaker for your own family? Um, Because you were saying a lot of people in this situation, they are required or needing to parent a child in a way they've never seen. Mm -hmm. So for you, how did the Lord bring you to a place where you could parent your own children in a way that you maybe had not seen? Um, I think the Lord gave me a great humility to look around me and ask you know, a lot of people for help. Uh, my my mother-in-law and father-in-law are very godly people and have provided um, a ton of support to me when I was a young mom. Um, so I do have family members. And my mother and I actually became believers at about the same time when I was around six years old. And so it isn't that I couldn't ask my mom because she grew in the Lord as I did. Um, but there are lots of differences. I have four kids. She had one, you know, and she wasn't a believer when I was young. And so there she says, you're going to have to ask somebody else. I, I can tell you what to do when they're about six. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, my children growing up here has uh, been a phenomenal experience because the women that have been just a little bit older than me or in the stage ahead of me, I guess is a good way to say it have been so faithful to walk alongside me and say, now do this, or please don't die on that hill. It is not even worth it. You are focused on the wrong thing. Go this direction. Look at what the Lord is doing here. Even helping me to see there are certain things that are universal in parenting and and to stop taking it personally and to just keep going and stop trying to find a system that works, but just realize that keep your system and keep moving, the Lord will be faithful. I have really relied on a lot of women that are older than I am at this church and treasure all of the input that they have given to me because it is really because of them that I'm able to see beyond what is right in front of me and parent with hope. And I will tell you, even though my children now are young adults and um, and a son in high school, that never stops. I mean, I still am in a position of humility to go to lunch with someone and say, you have young adult adult girls, help me understand this, you know, help me parent this well. And our church members are so faithful to do that. But you do really need to have, just ask. People are super willing to help. Heather, how has your dad's story as an adoptee how has that shaped your worldview and your ministry? I feel like the the next layer to that, aside that he was adopted, is that when I was 19, my dad died. And my mom, in her grief, sort of walked away from me. So it's interesting at being middle-aged now and looking back and realizing how much of an impact that had 
that I, in my work now with Kara, who is an adult adoptee, um, though I don't have the adoption story in my own narrative, the feeling of abandonment and questioning and unanswerable questions because he's not alive mm -hmm. and we're really at a place that I can't really get to his birth history. I've tried a little bit, but um, I haven't been able to quite do that yet. So I, I feel a lot of parallels with Amy's story, although the circumstances are completely different in that I have parented without somebody to go to. I have sort of parented familially in this vacuum of I don't have parents that I can ask, but it was God's grace to bring me to this church in that all of these years raising our kids here, this has been my family. This has been the place that I can go to and say, you know, as Amy said, you know, the people when we were doing mops, the mentor moms who were a step ahead, you know, I I don't have anybody to ask how am I supposed to do this place or or even asking Amy who, um, you know, how are you doing this? You know, sort of sharing with each other. Um, so yes, the fact that my dad is adopted is is for sure a piece of it. And then I feel like there's a ripple. There's a, was a bigger ripple from losing him and feeling parentless at 19. That has really stirred my heart to continue the work in adoption, and um, and and in that journey, being at a place now where I feel such a passion not just for adoption, but that the church respond to families in need um, in a, a, a good way, with expertise, with being well-equipped. And that is love, but it is also a lot of understanding about trauma and the things that brain research has revealed in the last decade. Um, so approaching that those needs in a way that is also informed by the way God has revealed how our bodies uh, react, how our brains react to early trauma uh, from, you know, issues in the family um, to generational cycles um, all the way forward. So I think in that regard, when Amy and I started uh, working with foster and adoption advocates, we shared this huge passion for stirring the church to understand trauma and operate from that place mm -hmm. um, to best serve um, the, the kids and really get to the root of it, which is family preservation, wrap around care to these families at risk. Um, and how do we live out Isaiah 61 to rebuild ancient ruins and, and break these cycles? I love that you all are talking about how the church comes alongside and how it's helped you through your parenting. Um, I know that there's a sweet story between the two of you, Amy, when you had your first foster placement and Heather, you were able to come and help her. Would y'all share that? Yeah, I um, our very first foster placement was with a little girl that was two. And um, when she came to our home, of course, we were very nervous and I did not realize we had taken a million classes, but living it out is quite different. And just the um, the anticipation of how it was going to change our family dynamic was difficult for me because 
like most mothers, we try to control what is in front of us. And it's, of course, it's all a facade. Side note, that you're controlling any of it, but whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, we all like to mm-hmm. pretend we've got it yes. together. Yeah. But the, the, I guess the point being that it was beyond the norm at that point because we're literally adding another human being that we don't know and been told to care well for this child. <laughs> and all I've done is go to some classes that I've never met this child. Anyway, but Heather uh, in her kindness, like just realized that I am, I don't like to cook and meal planning is very overwhelming to me. And, and so just knowing me well, she just said, here's what I'm going to do. And she and her daughter made freezer meals. Like, and I'm talking like, a freezer full, not, not like a tall freezer. I mean, like a cooler full, I guess Mm -hmm. is a better way to describe that full of freezer meals that must've lasted us at least a month. And that just taking something that, well, it was a bonus that she knew I don't like to cook. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I guess you could technically do that for someone who does like to cook too, but that was um, an extra ministry. But yeah, just being able to receive that from her and uh, from her daughter was such a huge blessing because I could kind of take that off the top of what I was looking at in front of me that I felt like was very beyond me as a mother. I was able to like take dinner preparation off of my responsibility list for a good long while. And so, you know, you almost equate it to, we really love one another well when someone has a a baby in our church, right? Or when someone gets sick, but there's really no, there's no guidebook for people who just have a kid show up, Mm -hmm. right? That's very different. But what I appreciated is Heather ministered to me the same way she would have ministered to me if it had been my newborn. Mm -hmm. And so if we just really think as a church in that regard, what would we do for someone who had just had a baby? Well, we would do those same things for an individual who has just had a new placement arrive. And so, yes, that was a very sweet memory for me and a huge blessing to our family. You mentioned the change in dynamic in bringing another human into your home. Mm -hmm. How have you seen your family um, evolve or change through this ministry? I think that it has given our children, and I know for Taylor and I for sure, is given our children of eyes uh, to see people with empathy and grace that they might otherwise overlook. And so uh, it has really informed uh, for uh, our older girls, for sure. It has informed what they would like to do um, as a career um, because they have seen uh, that in the healthcare field, there have been people that have ministered well to our foster children, and it is it has shown them that is something that I could do, um, and I might be able to minister to other foster care children. And so, it is uniquely informed what they have chosen to do vocationally and their you know college experience in pursuing that. So that was an unintended outcome for sure, but it has affected them in that way. I will say, just to be really candid, it does add a layer of grief to your children that that they um, would obviously otherwise not be exposed to. And I think that in our culture, 
Um, most parents try everything they can to lessen the exposure to that kind of grief. But it's an ongoing conversation because uh, even in talking to our daughter that is 18 and is a freshman in college, we were talking to her last night about this, that there's we all really from time to time get blindsided with the grief. It's quite complex that uh, you are missing a child that you used to care for like they were your own sibling or your own biological child that no longer lives in your home. And um, But I will say that I would not trade it. I think we should all grieve the sin that occurs in our world, and we should mourn it until Jesus comes back for us, because it should prompt us to pray for those individuals that are in those situations. Those are souls to be one for the Lord. And I have just asked, we have asked our children, and we have used this, um, I guess, this thought process ourselves that in our grief, our grief should not lead us to be in a position of despair and despondency over what we could not ultimately fix, but our grief should lead us to hopefully for as long as that child is living, it should be the fuel that provides us um, the energy to pray for that child and for other children in that position, but specifically for those children. Some of the stories are happier endings than others, whether they were reunified or they have gone on to live with um, adoptive families. I know the Lord sees them and that their story is not over. And we have a real opportunity in our grief of missing them to partner in prayer. Um, I feel like it's the Holy Spirit sometimes that is saying, you are grieving, but let's turn that this direction. Let's allow that to be the catalyst for prayer that actually affects change. So I think that's um, a huge way we've seen it. But yeah, I would say by and large, it's um, allowed our children at a very young age to not rule themselves out of ministry and not treat themselves as junior Christ followers or junior Christians who don't have the same responsibilities as a part of the believing body. It allowed them to see, I am I am at a critical place in this child's ministry. If I weren't here, these things would not be accomplished. And so there's a beauty in that that cannot be duplicated otherwise. And so I would not trade it. I love that they uh, do not discard people because of where they have come from. It almost is a I feel like uh, a part of our children that it draws them in because they they realize there is there is something behind who you are and I want to know more about it so that I can connect. It's a it's very emotional and and it could obviously be avoided if you don't you know pick it up and carry it for as long as we did. But I I would not trade it. I think it's very common even within the church, maybe especially in the church, that people will avoid grief at all costs. Sure. And it's very difficult to think about leaning into that mm-hmm. on purpose when maybe it's not your own to carry, you know, that there it may be the grief that the child has or that is wrapped around the family's story, but you're actively choosing to lean into that. 
And Heather, I know that you have had a fair share of grief. You've even written a book on it. And so I wonder if you can speak from your own experience, how is it possible to lean into grief in a way that grieves upward instead of gets consumed? I think um, grief has been such a recurring theme in my life in various ways. And early on, for it to become a catalyst, to move me forward, uh, because I feel like when we find purpose in our pain, when we um, allow God, when we lean into it like a labor pain, and we say, this is going to hurt, but we choose to allow God to birth something new from it, then that brings purpose to the pain. And in that way, I feel like it mirrors the story of the crucifixion, that God had a purpose in that pain, a great purpose, an eternal purpose, a world-changing, you know, monumental purpose. And I feel like when we can lean into the pain and say, I am going to choose to believe that this is a labor pain that God can use to birth something new and bring purpose from, then redemption occurs. And that is, to me, that is that thought has been a foothold in a more recent season of severe depression. That was the thought that God gave me one night that I just held on to for a couple of years is that I'm going to choose to believe that um, if I lean into this like labor pain, something new can be birthed from this because I believe that that is God's intention is to to redeem the hard places. And the story of Ruth is what I wrote about in my book and how God is imaged in the person of Boaz to move to uh, the widow gleaning in the field to move to her and give her a place of belonging from somebody gleaning in the field, a worker in the field, to a secure belonging in his home as his bride. And I feel like in that story, we see it lived out what it is to grieve forward, to yes, grieve and lament and allow ourselves to be broken, you know, in those those really brutal places of pain, but leaning into that and saying, um, like the psalmist, like Jeremiah, I will lament and then I will turn my mind. This is how we grieve forward. I will lament. I will admit this is hard. I will collapse in the arms of Jesus. And then I'm going to remind myself the truth that God can bring beauty from these ashes beautiful. And I think so, just such a, an amazing picture of how in both of these situations, whether it's helping adult adoptees or doing wraparound care or opening your home to foster or respite, that you are imaging Christ in that way. And, and I love that you say leaning into as in labor pains you know, but that for a child, they may not be able to lean into that. And so you can do that on their behalf. And both of you are doing that in in the ways that God has given you. I feel like we could sit and talk all day. Thank you guys for doing this and sharing your stories. And I look forward to talking again sometime. Thanks for having us. 
Life Stories is a production of the Life Task Force at Church at the Cross. For more information, go to churchatthecross.com.